I originally moved uh, to the States back in 2006, and my plan at the time was to live here for two years and then head back to the UK for more theological training. Uh, now, since I was planning to be here a short time, my goal was to make as much of that time as possible by seeing as much of the country as possible. Uh, each summer, I had planned uh, to take a road trip, uh, and in the end, I actually only took one of them. Uh, a friend and I got a rental car, a one-way rental, in Connecticut, and we drove across the entire northern part of the country. Uh, we saw all kinds of weird and wonderful signs. Um, in the end, we dropped off our car in Seattle and then flew back to New England. Uh, and I have to say, it was an amazing trip. I got a sense of the vastness of the western part of the country. It turns out even the Midwest is actually still in the east. Uh, but that was where my road trip ended. Um, Sherilyn and I got serious. Um, it was clear my plans were going to change or be upgraded. And uh, here I am, 17 years later. Uh, the sense of urgency I have to explore the United States has dissipated. Uh, maybe we'll take one of those road trips in our retirement. Who knows? Uh, anyway, what does that have to do with our sermon text? Uh, why are we even diving into the book of Acts in chapter 19? It doesn't seem like a usual place to start, does it? Well, actually, the reason we are here is because of a similar plan I, I made a few years ago. Uh, because the book of Acts itself is a kind of road trip. Uh, the book of Acts is really a travelogue, uh, not so much for, for people, but actually a travelogue for the gospel itself, for the message of Jesus Christ. It describes how, in the power of God's Spirit, the gospel travels uh, from Jerusalem uh, out into Judea and then Samaria, and then how it went on to reach the nations and Christianity became a global phenomenon. Uh, and over a series of summers, uh, we've been tracking that journey, taking uh, various road trips, We've been exploring the terrain of the book of Acts, if you will. And many, many years ago, we, we got as far as chapter 12. And then, if you were here last summer, you will know we picked up in chapter 13. At chapter 13 and following describe how the gospel reaches the nations, how it expands to Turkey and Greece. And chapters 19 through 28 map the final leg of that journey, how the gospel reaches Rome, the very center of the then-known world. And as we see this, as the gospel goes forth in Acts 19 through 28, we find the gospel of Jesus Christ put to the test. How will the good news of Jesus Christ stand up to the challenges of the power of Rome? How will it withstand a collision with such a dominant authority of the world? Can Christianity thrive in a world that is so at odds with everything that Jesus Christ stood for? Can the gospel thrive in a world like this world? the world in which we find ourselves today, a world where many people perceive Christianity is a threat to progress, a threat to social order, less good news for a better future and more a holdout from the past. Today, I'd suggest that many people treat Christianity as, uh, as a, I suppose, something like a social contagion, something unsafe, something threatening something we need vaccinating against uh, that needs eliminating, like COVID. Uh, but what we'll see in the book of Acts is this, that the gospel can and does thrive in this kind of environment. And the reason it does so is because it comes with an even greater power and authority than the power of Rome. It is the good news of a risen and, raising, and reigning Christ, a Christ who is in charge, a Christ who sits on the throne. 
a Christ who is even now gathering people to himself, all kinds of people in all kinds of seemingly hostile places. And so this is the plan for the next few months. I know we're not quite at summer yet, but we're going to uh, begin our road trip a little bit early. Uh, we're going to take another gospel road trip together, a trip to witness once again the power of the gospel of Jesus. And this time, we're going to see the gospel hit some pretty rough terrain. And so I suppose we could call this road trip a a kind of crash course in defensive driving. Uh, But this week, we're going to spend uh, uh, some time in the ancient city of Ephesus before we move on. In verse 21 there, Paul lays out his travel plans. Paul resolves in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia back to Jerusalem. And then uh, he says this, after I have been there, uh, I must also see Rome. Uh, That tells us where all of this is heading. Uh, But around that time, we read, before he leaves Ephesus, we have this dramatic encounter. There is a riot that ensues. And to understand this riot and what it means, we're going to consider this passage in three parts. Uh, Firstly, we're going to look at the conflict, the conflict in verses 23 through 28. Uh, And then secondly, we're going to look at the chaos. Uh, We see that chaos in verses uh, 29 through 34. And then finally, we're going to consider the clarity, the conflict, the chaos, and the clarity. Because what becomes clear is this. Rather than presenting a threat to society, the real threat to society comes not from Christianity, but from those who actually oppose the spread of the gospel of Jesus. And so let's jump right in and look at this conflict, the conflict. What conflict am I talking about? Uh, Well, what I mean is this. Uh, What these verses demonstrate is that as the gospel thrives, false gods are threatened. As the gospel thrives, false gods are threatened. Uh, Look down with me at verse 23. Uh, About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, And just to be clear, the way there is used as shorthand for the way of Christ, the way of salvation through Christ, the path of following Jesus Christ in the way of discipleship. Uh, And this causes a disturbance. In fact, I love the way that Luke puts this. He kind of understates it. There was no little disturbance. It almost sounds a little British, doesn't it? And to understand why this caused a disturbance, we need to grasp the context. Just up the page, we are told how effectively the gospel spread in the city of Ephesus. Verse 20 of Acts 19 tells us that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, Now, Ephesus, we need to understand, was a very religious and spiritual place. There were temples. uh, There were shrines everywhere. Uh, People practiced all kinds of weird and wonderful spiritual things. Uh, And much of it centered on on this one place, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Ephesus contained the temple of the Greek god Artemis, or or the Romans called her Diana. She was the goddess of the hunt. And as we'll see, this temple wasn't just the center of religious activity, uh, but as you can imagine, it it also drove the economy of the city of Ephesus. Uh, Yet it's in this very place that the gospel makes an impact. Uh, People are turning from the dead idols of Ephesus, and they're starting to serve the living God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And so deep was the impact that we even see people making a clean break. Uh, Just up the page, we read of how uh, the people of Ephesus would bring their old magic books, books of all kinds of pagan spells, and they would would openly burn them in the marketplace. Uh, And surely this was a great thing. This is the kind of thing we all want to see, isn't it? It's basically a revival. People are en masse turning uh, from idols to serve the living God. They're turning to put their trust in the Lord Jesus. 
uh, but it would be naive to believe that this was welcomed, or, or at least that, was, that it was welcomed by everyone. No, this thriving gospel in Ephesus causes a disturbance, and verses 24 through 28 tell us why. Uh, really, the problem was this. It posed a big threat to that society. Uh, look down at verse 24 with me. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 24. Let's read these verses again. Uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who, was, uh, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. Uh, think of this as kind of a, a, a joint gathering of the various trade unions of Ephesus. Uh, and listen to what he says. He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands, specifically with their hands, are not gods at all. And now firstly, notice how he actually recognizes the impact of the gospel. Uh, and in some sense, we have to say, this is a man who understood the message. But he goes on in verse 27, there is a danger. Not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, Demetrius has two main concerns. He's worried about his gold, and he's worried about his God, isn't he? In terms of his gold, this is the problem. Christianity, it turns out, is incredibly bad for the economy. And now put yourself in, in their shoes for a moment, and I think you'll, you'll see this. Uh, imagine that you were a silversmith. Uh, you made little trinkets, uh, little images of Artemis, maybe models for the temple, maybe models that could be used in, in family shrines, or maybe souvenirs for the constant stream of religious tourists. Uh, imagine that you ran a bed and breakfast in this city. Or imagine that you owned one of the many local restaurants. Imagine you were a farmer who raised animals to sell in the, and sacrifice in the temple. The advance of the gospel, the fact that Paul has been traveling around telling people to reject these gods, uh, to reject the temple itself, well, well, that isn't very good for business. Uh, think about Disney World for a moment. I know for some of you that will be encouraging. For some of you it perhaps will be a bit of a nightmare. Uh, but imagine for a moment that Disney World went out of business. And now I don't want to stir up dissension here because some of you might say, well, that, that would be a great thing. That would be wonderful. And at the same time, I know that even at the thought, some of you would be heartbroken and devastated. But consider this, how many jobs would be lost if such a thing happened? Not just at Disney World itself, but how many hotels, airlines, travel companies would be sunk as a result of that? Well, this is exactly what would happen in Ephesus if the temple of Artemis went out. The whole city would collapse. The entire economy would become unstable. And yet it isn't just the economy that Demetrius is worried about. No, he's worried about the, the name, the honor of the goddess herself. The spread of Christianity seems to undermine her. As Jesus receives more and more glory, it only spells doom for the goddess Artemis. These craftsmen had given their whole lives in service of this good. And it wasn't just an economic thing for them. No, it was religious. They, they were devoted uh, they believed that by serving her, they were bringing blessing on themselves, blessing on their families. Uh, more than that, there's an element of patriotism here as well, isn't there? I mean, notice what they shout when Demetrius riles them up. Uh, verse 28, uh, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, uh, not just great is Artemis, no, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, 
Uh, the problem was the spread of Christianity threatened their jobs. It threatened their livelihood. They deeply held religious beliefs as well as their sense of national pride. They know as a fact that, that this is true, that as the gospel thrives, it presents a threat, a threat to social order, to the economy, to industry, to tourism, uh, to other false gods that, that the people of Ephesus worshipped. And this is the conflict that I'm talking about here. And really, it is a huge conflict. We might even go so far as to call it a clash of kingdoms. And listen, we still see this same conflict, this same clash of kingdoms today. Whenever the gospel thrives, false gods are always threatened. So in one sense, Demetrius is right. And today's detractors of Christianity are right. Christianity does itself uh, indeed pose an existential threat to our society. It poses an economic threat. It poses a religious threat. A threat to the way of life which we've become accustomed to as a country. A revival of sincere Christian faith would completely turn things upside down. It would probably cause an economic disaster. I mean, just think about the number of jobs that would be lost as a result. Now, apparently, the so-called sex industry brings in a revenue of around 15 billion U.S. dollars every year. More than the combined revenue of professional sports and live music combined. And that was back in 2009. And, of course, that's just the legal side of things. Uh, and I also read this, that, that the gross gaming revenue of gambling in this country reached almost $53 billion in 2021. $53 billion. That's a lot of jobs. I mean, do you really want them to close the casino over by the steel stacks? Well, then you would lose the outlets as well. And consider the lottery, how the lottery has become such a great source of income for older Pennsylvanians, as we're so often told. Uh, and those things really just surface things as well, aren't they? But what if people actually turn from false gods, the false god of self, the false god of success? What if instead of living for themselves and seeking to advance their own careers, they started actually living to serve other people instead? What if they started to take seriously the call to sacrificially love their neighbors, to care for their family as well as their own? Uh, what impact might the spread of Christianity have on the sale of luxury goods? Uh, might it make a dent in the uh, $600 billion people spend each year on home improvements? As people start to value Christian character and integrity over prosperity, might it change things a little bit at work? Might some of the powerful people at the top lose their jobs? Uh, and don't even get me started with politics either. Might this not change the overall tone and shape, not just of policy, but even political dialogue in the country? And the thing is, let's be honest, a lot of people are invested in the way things are now, aren't they? And in one sense, I suspect there is a little bit of Demetrius in every single one of us. Uh, the status quo just isn't that bad for most. And so the thought of stirring up uh, things by people becoming Christians, that, that really would be a huge threat. Even for Christians, it might pose a threat. It might mean that we start feeling more pressure, more pressure to, uh, well, behave like Christians. And for as much as we love Christ, if we're honest, we all benefit, don't we, from a godless, fallen, often sinful system. And so we need to take seriously this conflict uh, the conflict we see in Acts 19, a conflict between Christ and the world, a battle between gods, a battle between kings and kingdoms. 
that we feel this conflict in our own lives. We feel it in our own hearts. We feel it in our own homes, in our own families. Uh, Demetrius is right to be worried. Uh, the conflict is real. Uh, Jesus poses a threat to false gods, false gods of comfort, of security, of sex, of success, uh, false gods that even we at times like to worship. Uh, but secondly, having highlighted the conflict, notice where the conflict leads. Uh, what we find as we read on is that chaos ensues. And so firstly, we've looked at the conflict. Secondly, let's think about the chaos. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm referring to the riot that takes place in verses 29 through 34. Uh, Demetrius has successfully stirred up the crowd. People are now riled up. Uh, people have already begun shouting and chanting. Uh, think of a political rally, or, or if that's too grim, think about a crowd of cheering fans at the Super Bowl. Uh, we don't know exactly where this gathering took place. It probably took place at one of the guilds, but, but it begins to spill out into the streets. We've seen this countless times, haven't we? Even, even recently on our TVs. Uh, perhaps there is some legitimate concern about a social or political issue, about racism or some other injustice. And people take to the streets, and, and things soon start to spiral. Look at verse 29. The city was filled with confusion, a word that really does describe tumult or chaos. And they rush together to the theater. A large public forum used not just for entertainment, but also for the regular political assemblies. It could hold around 10,000 people. And they drag out the first two associates of Paul they can find, uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who, who were companions of travel with Paul. Now, put yourself in these two men's shoes. I, they must have been petrified. It, it has all the signs of a lynching, doesn't it? And I love this, having witnessed all these things, Paul himself wants to be there. I, I love this detail. It might be an angry mob, but Paul just can't bring himself to pass up another opportunity to preach the gospel. Unfortunately, his, his friends uh, held him back. In fact, we get a sense of the impact the gospel has made because even some of the leaders of the region, the Asiarchs, are actually warning Paul, Paul, just, just don't go there. Uh, it could have been a whole lot worse, couldn't it? If, if Paul was there, it could have got a whole lot more violent. He, he could have done more than just take a beating. And this was dangerous. Uh, and as we usually see in these kinds of situations, trying to engage in, in civil dialogue would hardly be productive, would it? This is less substance, more slogans. Less facts, more fury. Less argumentation, more anger. Uh, I mean, even the purpose of the gathering is unclear. In verse 32 we read, some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and, and most of them didn't even know why they were there. It sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds more than a little bit familiar. I actually love how familiar this feels. I mean, Alexander stands up, he tries to reason with them. I, I love him, he's not even a Christian, he's a Jew. And yet he is, uh, he is on defense here. And yet even as he tries to weigh in, what do we read in verse 34? That they recognize that he was a Jew, and what do they do? Well, for two hours they get in his face, and they start yelling even louder, crying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And now, just to be clear, what I'm about to make is not a political comment, but we could, I think, say that Ephesus have their own MAGA Thing going on. Make Artemis great again. Isn't that what they're shouting? And this is where the conflict leads, isn't it? It stirs people up. And notice the cause. Uh, the opposition isn't really about Christianity. It isn't really about whether what Paul says is true. Uh, no, it's simply self-interest. They're worried about the bottom line, and so they're stirring up the masses into a place of, of hysteria. 
Uh, and listen, there is a certain extent to which we see the same thing today, I believe. Uh, Christianity brings conflict. The gospel of Jesus Christ challenges the false gods of this world. Uh, and what is the response? Is it reason dialogue? Do people really want to engage in a debate? Well, well, sure, some people certainly do, and we welcome that. But, but I'd suggest that most opposition to Christianity today isn't really of that nature. Instead, it's just people like sheep following the crowds. Uh, people perhaps don't even know the reason for their opposition. Uh, people are just parroting the same empty claims over and over about the conflict between science and faith, about the so-called contradictions in the Bible, suggesting that Christians are all just hypocrites and bigots. And now we have to say those are just old tropes, aren't they? Uh, most of them are demonstrably untrue, and uh, you really never want to get the facts in the way of your feelings, though, do you? Uh, in truth, people know that the gospel is a threat. The scriptures tell us, I believe, that they know it in their hearts. In the gospel, Jesus states a claim on our lives. He tells us that he is Lord. He calls us to repent, to turn away from sin, and to put our trust in him as the king of God's kingdom. But the problem is we all enjoy living life our own way without him. We don't like to be told that we are wrong. We enjoy worshiping, serving, created things instead of God our creator. And yet Jesus Christ comes to us and he tells us that if we do that, there is forgiveness, there is salvation. But even that is a challenge. It humbles us. It, 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 it humbles people who tend to be proud and self-sufficient. Jesus teaching about money, about sex, about how to live life, all of these things just seem so radical. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves in order to follow him, hardly popular in a society so set on self, self-discovery, self-expression, self-fulfillment. And no wonder chaos begins to ensue when people start becoming Christians. I think of a pastor friend of mine. Uh, he was serving in a mainline church. He was preaching the word of God. He was preaching the gospel. It was powerful. It was effective. People were indeed becoming Christians. And this was a huge problem. It doesn't sound like a huge problem in a church, but it, but it certainly was for him. And the reason it was is because all of these new converts actually believed in Jesus. And chaos ensued for him. Enemies stirred up people against him. Uh, to cut a long story short, he actually ended up being kicked out of that church by the bishop or by someone else higher up in the ecclesial food chain. Uh, people don't like it when the gospel succeeds. Uh, even some people who call themselves Christians. I know some of you have experienced this for yourself and perhaps are experiencing it now. Your faith brings you into conflict, conflict between you and your friends, conflict between you and even your close family. Uh, there may not be rioting in the streets, but you can certainly identify with, uh, with Gaius and Aristarchus in our passage. You feel like you've been dragged out, proverbially speaking. Maybe you dread the holidays for this reason. As you gather with family, you have to watch uh, your tongue, really, in case a riot breaks out over the Thanksgiving dinner table because of something you believe. Uh, just as in Acts 19, the conflict often leads to chaos. The conflict often leads to chaos. That's so often what we see. And it can be sad, it can be confusing, it can take a lot of wisdom and strength. And so, before we close, we have to remember our final point. Having seen the conflict and the chaos, let's close by considering the clarity. The clarity. That's what verses 35 through 41 bring. Uh, but what do I mean by that? Well, I mean this, that one man in Ephesus seems to cut through all the chaos. 
He actually acts to take out some of the heat of the situation. And in doing so, he actually helps all of us see things a whole lot more clearly. And now it might come as a surprise to discover who this man is. He is more than likely himself a pagan. Uh, He is the town clerk. Uh, We read of him in in verse 35. Uh, But God has given him both wisdom and tact in talking to his people. Uh, We should pray for the same kind of wisdom and tact for for our own politicians, surely. But look at verse 35. Look at what verse 35 says. Firstly, notice how he affirms their patriotic zeal. Uh, Make Artemis great again. That's what they're shouting. And look at verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Uh, But then he calms them down, verse 36. Uh, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and and do nothing rash. Uh, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Uh, And then he points them to the proper channels through which they can raise their concerns. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Uh, But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Uh, And then he gets to the crunch here, I think. Uh, And it's quite possible he makes this last point also driven by a certain amount of self-interest. He doesn't want to get in trouble with the higher-ups, and so he says this in verse 40, For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Uh, How does that bring clarity to the situation. Well, I think the clarity is really found in that phrase, isn't it? There is no cause that we can give for justifying such a commotion. Uh, here is what I think is going on. Uh, at the end of the story, who is the biggest threat to the place to the who is the biggest threat to the peace and order of Ephesus? Is it the Christians? No, it isn't the Christians at all. In fact, the town clerk, their own town, town clerk basically says as much. And no, the big threat to social order in Ephesus is actually Demetrius and his friends. It isn't the Christians uh, who are causing the trouble. No, no, it's, it's actually the people who are fighting against them who are stirring up a commotion. And I think this underscores a bigger point that we're going to see in the book of Acts. As I said at the start, in, in this part of the road trip, we're going to hit some rough terrain. And so what we see in these chapters is, is kind of a, a crash course in defensive driving. Uh, And one of the key points there really is this, that that we need to confront this rough terrain with confidence. Uh, One of the key things we need to keep in our minds and our hearts uh, in engaging with the world is this, that it isn't the gospel that poses a threat to good order. No, it's actually the angry mob of idol worshippers. You see, it's easy for Christians to get gaslighted, isn't it? Uh, To somehow be blamed for all of the chaos that we are somehow causing. See, these Christians are no good, people say. By preaching the gospel, they're they're causing a riot. They're stirring up all kinds of conflict. They're stirring up anger. They're hindering progress. And so Christians get get somehow blamed for the anger of others. It's like the Christian evangelist, Hutan Tash. I was reading about her um, just recently. Uh, She's a woman who regularly debates Muslims at at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, London. Uh, Now, if you don't know what Speaker's Corner is, for 800 years, this place has been an open forum for public debate. You can really go there and and say anything. It gets pretty heated. Uh, It's quite a sight to behold. 
And so Hutan regularly visits there to debate Islam and the Quran, and, and she does so with Muslim speakers. And yet, despite the fact that Speaker's Corner is meant to be an open forum, uh, she has faced uh, multiple threats to her life on various occasions. In fact, she was even stabbed and attacked in 2021, uh, suffering wounds to her hands and her face. Uh, the conflict certainly does bring chaos. Uh, but quite shockingly, the police have repeatedly failed to protect Hutan. In fact, they've never even arrested the people that assaulted her. Instead, she was arrested. She was detained overnight. The reason was she was causing trouble. She was challenging Islam. And now this is the logic. Preaching the gospel causes conflict. Conflict causes chaos. And so, well, it needs to be stopped. It happens so often, perhaps not in that extreme. But how often are Christians accused of things which, of which in some sense we might be guilty, but perhaps is more the guilt of our opponents? How often are Christians accused of being bigoted bullies? And yet, I guess over the years I may have met one or two bigoted bullying Christians, but, but certainly not many. And yet, ironically, the very people accusing Christians of these things could only be described by those words precisely. And thankfully, this is not where it ends in Acts, is it? This is what I think. This is the clarity that Acts brings. It's not the way every situation ends, but it's the way it ends here. Instead, actually, the town clerk sees what's really going on. What poses the threat to good order? Is the solution here to lock up the Christians for preaching the gospel? No. I know the real threat to society, the real threat to peace, it certainly isn't Christianity. You see, yes, Christianity is highly disruptive to social and economic order. People, to cr people coming to Christ causes a huge change. Uh, people are threatened by this. But Christianity itself poses no threat to anything good. Christians don't pose any threat to anything good. In fact, Christians should always strive to, to honor and respect those in authority to pursue good order in their society. Now, we should set ourselves apart from the angry mob by being gentle and kind and generous and, and loving like our own Lord and Savior. Now, Jesus gave his life for us. And now he calls us to give our lives in service of the people around us. In this, Jesus is now at work dethroning false gods, and so we should have confidence in the power of Jesus. And this is what we learn in the first stretch of this summer road trip in Acts. As we seek to live for Christ, as we seek to share Christ, as God has called us to do, this will almost inevitably bring us into conflict. As the gospel thrives, false gods are threatened. And this conflict will often lead to a certain amount of chaos as people mount attacks. As I said before, I know some of you experience this within your homes, within families, or maybe in your workplace. In our culture, we seem to see this more and more, and, and yet it's for precisely that reason we need this kind of clarity. Clarity that Jesus isn't really the threat. Sure, he's a threat to us living life our own way, but is he a threat to society? No, the real threat it is from those who oppose him. And so as we, uh, we enter May, as we enter into the summer months, as we seek to share Christ, let's do so with great confidence. Let's continue to do good and not give up. Even when there is pushback, however unjust, let's continue to serve him. Now let's rest assured that he rules, he reigns. He is building his kingdom even today. Uh, the conflict brings chaos, but God's word brings clarity. 
Jesus Christ is on the throne, building his kingdom. So let's turn to him now. Let's ask for his help. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these words in Acts, how they describe not just uh, the world back then, but the world we live in today. And Lord, we, we acknowledge and bring to you some of the conflict that we feel, even some of the conflict in our own hearts as we seek to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we bring to you the chaos that often ensues as people oppose the gospel, and yet we thank you for the clarity of your word, that you are working for good, uh, that you pose no threat to good order, but you are indeed the God of good order, who can reorder our lives through your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us hope and confidence in that truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.